What does filmed for IMAX mean? It isn't just a movie that'll look great on IMAX's screens. It means that hiding from a sandstorm feels like fear in every flicker. And every triumph is felt in every sound wave. And the things we've only imagined, you can truly experience those too. That's what filmed for IMAX means. Get tickets to Experience Dune Part 2 now and IMAX's exclusive expanded aspect ratio. Welcome to the Everything 80s Podcast Christmas Special. Hey there, welcome to the Everything 80s Podcast Christmas Special. I'm Jamie, thanks for coming on out. I'm here, ready to go. I've got my spiked eggnog, I've got the fireplace channel on the TV that's pumping out some decent heat, which I should probably check on, which isn't good for the TV. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at a classic 1980s movie just a quick look, and then the sequel to it, which you've probably never heard of before. Then we're going to look at another classic, which is first from the 1960s, but has become a part of childhoods, especially through the 80s, the 90s, the 70s. That, of course, is the Rankin-Bass Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. So we're going to take a deep dive on all of that but before we start if you haven't already make sure you subscribe wherever you find your podcasts i should be there and then speaking of that coming up uh if you're part of the patreon movie club i'll be releasing a show in the next week or two that will be a review of another 1980s christmas classic i won't give it away i'll give one hint the the one hint the sort of deep dive from the movie is uh The Night the Reindeer Died. If you know the movie I'm talking about, you know exactly what this is. Uh, If not, that will be the surprise you can look forward to. So if you're not sure what that is, Patreon is a way to support the show and also get like bonus content while you're at it. And there's different tiers and like different levels. It starts as low as like two bucks a month. And with the different levels come the different rewards. And one of the tiers is the... uh, Everything 80s Movie Club, where I review the good, the bad, and the ugly of 1980s movies. So that'll be coming up. If you want to learn more about that or check out, you know, the different levels and everything that comes with it, you can go to patreon.com slash 80s. So p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash 80s. Or wherever you're listening to this, wherever there's like the show notes or the details, there'll be a link there if you want to check out more. Okay, now let's get on with the Christmas special. So we're starting and looking at arguably the greatest Christmas movie of all time, and that, of course, is National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. Came out in 1989, was almost instantly labeled a Christmas classic, and I don't know about you, but it's absolute required viewing 
um, in my house, you know, growing up and still to this day. Uh, it was directed by John Hughes, stars Chevy Chase. It's the story, of course, of the Griswold family vacation. And, you know, over the years, the popularity has continued to grow and grow. And I'm not going to focus entirely on this. We're going to get to the sequel, which you may never have heard of. But I don't need to go over the plot of National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, because if you're listening to this show, you should know this movie like the back of your hand. But looking at a few sort of behind-the-scenes things to do with this movie. Like I said, directed by John Hughes was actually based on a short story that Hughes had written called Christmas 59. He wrote it in 1980 and it was published in the National Lampoon magazine. And, you know, National Lampoon has been a famous magazine from over the years. And then it turned into putting out, they put out films and TV and live theater. And it brought us, you know, Chevy Chase and Gilda Radner and John Belushi and uh, Harold Ramis and all these classics. Uh, and of course, Christmas Vacation being one of the best of all time. So the story like with Christmas Vacation is uh, Chris Columbus, who made movies uh, like, you know, Harry Potter and Gremlins, whatever, was the first person to be in, you know, to be in charge of going over uh, the production of the movie. And then he would be the director. He, he was involved, but just didn't get along with Chevy Chase at all. And basically it was a combination of like him quitting slash being pushed out. Then they brought in John Hughes and that changed sort of the whole direction of the movie. But Chevy Chase is notoriously famous for being difficult to work with, which you probably never knew growing up because we're like, Oh, it's just Clark Griswold. Um, so the movie first started shooting March 27th, 1989 in Colorado. They've used a few other locations, uh, including the Warner brothers ranch facilities in Burbank. So everything you've seen that includes the Griswold's house and the street were all actually done in a studio. And if the house looks familiar, it's because it was the same one used to film Bewitched. So the movie came out at an interesting time. It was uh, debuted on November 30th, 1989, which was the same weekend as Back to the Future 2. And I don't remember seeing Christmas Vacation until years later on video. I think mostly because I was so excited for Back to the Future 2. And it had a relatively late release. Um, you know, November 30th isn't bad. Some movies open on Christmas Day, some are earlier. It was tough. And again, going up against Back to the Future was was difficult. But it made nearly $12 million its opening weekend. Converted for today was around $24 million. Not great, but okay. Overall, it went on to make around $71 million, which converted for today is about $142 million, which is pretty good, especially for a Christmas movie. Uh, Christmas Vacation actually topped the box office in its third week, and that never happens with movies, but there's probably a few reasons for this. Every, Like it said, everyone wanted to see Back to the Future, so that took up the majority of the ticket sales, and studios had, or sorry, movie theaters had fewer screens, so they could only show so much. So by the third week, everyone had seen Back to the Future, and uh, by that point, it was only a week out till Christmas, so those going to the movies were looking to see something Christmassy, and that was a year where Christmas movies were not a priority for some reason. The only other Christmas movie that year uh, to go up against was the movie Prancer, if you remember that. Again, no one wanted to go up against Back to the Future Part 2. Uh, fun fact, uh, Johnny Galecki, who is in, um, but whose bud in Christmas Vacation was also in Prancer. So he's kind of the king of Christmas that year. So obviously a classic 
movie now and required Christmas viewing. But there's a few things if you don't, depending on how deep you know this movie, there's a few things to look for when you're watching it. So the part where Chevy Chase doesn't get the lights on, or sorry, when Clark doesn't get the lights on and he goes nuts and starts punching all the reindeer and all that stuff, he actually breaks his hand. Uh, when he started. So he was supposed to finish by punching everything, but his hand was broken. So that's why he starts karate chopping everything because his, his hand was completely busted. The film actually had a huge budget, $27 million. Again, converted for today, it's, you know, getting upwards of 50. That's a lot for a Christmas movie and a comedy. So according to Randy Quaid, Cousin Eddie is based on a real guy. And the majority of the mannerisms and all that are based on this guy he knew growing up growing up in Texas. Um, other things, Aunt Bethany was played by Mae Questel, who was the voice of Betty Boop. And the scene when Bethany and Lewis first get to the Griswold's house, if you watch closely, when they enter the front door, a small earthquake actually hit. And if you watch it or, or slow down, you can actually see the camera shaking the whole time. Okay, so that is Christmas Vacation. And I talked about a sequel, and you probably don't know this. Not a lot of people do, or maybe you do. But Christmas Vacation had a sequel. And that seems sort of shocking because everyone should know about this movie. Like, it, it should have been one of the biggest movie sequels of all time. But that didn't happen because it is pretty horrible. And believe it or not, it was called Christmas Vacation 2, Cousin Eddie's Island Adventure. This is a real thing. It is a follow-up to one of the most iconic Christmas movies ever, and it turned the whole sort of franchise into a train wreck. So the first reason you've probably never heard of this thing uh, or didn't see it in theaters is because it never was released in theaters. Instead, it was aired on TV in 2003, which is even worse than going straight to video. That's how little faith uh, people have in something if it goes straight to TV. So the premise of this thing is also ridiculous. You can tell just by the title. So Cousin Eddie and Catherine are back, and we find out that Eddie works at a nuclear power plant, very Homer Simpson-ish. One day, he is outworked by a trained monkey. Eddie is then fired, but his boss is worried he's going to sue because it's so close to Christmas. Eddie's boss then gives him a tropical vacation to the South Pacific, where the family ends up getting shipwrecked. This gives Eddie the opportunity to show that he can provide for his family and give them a good Christmas. And of course, hijinks ensue. So again, the, the fact that this thing exists is so bizarre, but then that it's so bad, it, it possibly takes away from the original, which seems impossible. But just associating this thing with Christmas Vacation, even though it has Randy Quaid in it as Cousin Eddie... It's just still an atrocity. The full name is National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation 2, Cousin Eddie's Island Adventure. This thing came out on December 20th, 2003 on NBC. And if they had even done a close attempt at recreating the original, um, just not having it set on a tropical island, this thing could have been a massive TV event. Even if Chevy Chase wasn't in it, if they set this thing in like Eddie's, 
cabin or like just involving some of the other characters or, or just doing a rehash. But from Cousin Eddie's perspective, it could have been a big thing. But because it's this island setting and it's basically a cartoon and it's some people have called it the worst movie they've ever seen a lot of critics. So that's saying something. And again, the fact that this actually exists surprises most people, especially if you're a fan of the original Christmas Vacation, because you're like, how would I have never heard of this? Even the mention of a sequel to Christmas Vacation. Basically, what this seems like is a script that was lying around for something else. And they thought the only way to give it some attachment is to sort of insert the character of Eddie and attach the name Christmas Vacation. But of course... It just, it flopped in every way possible. Uh, you can, sometimes there is, depending on YouTube, you can see copies of it. You can even buy it to rent. I'm not sure if you'd want to do that. But if sometimes before they get taken down, you can actually watch the whole thing on YouTube. But I mean, be warned, it, it's it's brutal. Um, even Randy Quaid trying to recreate Eddie, just he can't do it in that circumstances. He can't be the lead of the whole thing. He's like the supporting player at best. And that's what makes him so good in Christmas Vacation. Okay, so that's just the look at the classic movie sequel that you probably never even heard of. So let's move on to a true beloved Christmas special. And that is Rankin Bass's Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. So... There's a few things I cover on that. Obviously, this is always primarily 1980s based, but there are those things that weren't created in the 80s, but were a huge part of uh, the childhood of kids growing up in the 80s. Like just thinking like Char a Charlie Brown Christmas, for example. These were things that if you grew up in the 80s, you felt like they were only they only came out then. We didn't know they were necessarily from the 60s or or whatever time period. They did, they felt fresh because they were brand new to us, and they're a huge part of 80s nostalgia. So Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, as a quick summary, was a TV movie produced by Rankin Bass in 1964. That's how old this thing is. It's based on the poem by Robert L. May and the song by Johnny Marks. And it, of course, has become the most successful and longest-running Christmas special in television history. This is what I love about shows and specials like this is because they're not limited to the 1980s. It's found an audience with every generation. But for the kids of the 80s, the Rankin-Bass Rudolph special has been adopted by all of us as it's ours. And it's a little tougher now because, you know, kids aren't necessarily watching network television. And, you know, you can watch it on YouTube, but we waited for this thing. Like you had to wait, you know, if you obviously recorded it. Uh, on VHS or whatever, but not everyone had a VCR, e even in the early to mid 80s. So this was an event like F Frosty and Charlie Brown Christmas. You waited all year to watch this thing. Now you can watch it pretty instantly and it might not necessarily mean as much to kids, but they, I think they still do appreciate it. But again, it, it's a big part of the childhood of kids of the 70s, the 90s, the early 2000s, you know, but specifically to a lot of kids in the 80s who we found have adopted it more as almost like an 80s special more than any of these other decades. And it's amazing that a TV special that is more than 50 years old continues to be a crucial part of the holiday season. For some people, Christmas doesn't start until Rudolph either airs on TV, and it still does, or you've watched it in whatever capacity. The first few scenes of it immediately bring up this magical feeling that happens every time you watch it. 
So let's dive into this. You probably think, of course, of the holiday special when you think of Rudolph. You may even think of the song which predates it, but both are predated by a booklet written by Robert L. May in 1939. The story of Rudolph was created for a retailer in Chicago called Montgomery Ward. They had given out coloring books for Christmas and thought it would be cheaper if they made their own one. May would put this together and somehow landed on this idea of using a reindeer as the main character. He played around with a few different names, including Rollo and Reginald, before landing on Rudolph. The story behind the story is that May needed a theme and got one when looking out of his office window to a fog-covered Chicago. The idea hit him that a bright red nose would be able to shine through the fog to help Santa find his way. The department store originally hated the idea, especially with Rudolph having a red nose. At this time, this was a way to caricature a drunk, you know, in a comic or a cartoon. You you gave them a red nose and it just sort of insinuated they were an alcoholic or whatever. So May brought in an illustrator to create a look that wasn't going to imply this. The story was written as a poem and 2.4 million copies would be produced. The first mass-marketed version of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer would be published in 1947 by Maxton Books. There would be a few follow-up books, including the sequel, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer Shines Again. That came out in 1954. It turns out that May had already written a sequel in 1947, but it was never released until Applewood Books tracked it down and released it in 1992. It was called Rudolph's Second Christmas. So that brings us into the song, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. So quick, who first sang the Rudolph song? You probably guessed Gene Autry, as most people do, but... That's, you know, that's the familiar version um, that we all know. But the original was first performed by Harry Brannon and was first debuted in New York City in November 1949. The song was written by Johnny Marks, who was a brother-in-law of May. Marks took the general story that existed from the poem, but added in a part where he gave names to the other reindeer. Marks also wrote songs like Rockin' Around the Christmas Tree. Gene Autry would then end up recording it in 1949. He originally passed on it, if you can believe it or not. He felt this Christmas kitty song would detract from this sort of cowboy persona he was trying to give off. But, you know, aren't we all in some way, I guess. This episode is brought to you by ABC. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. Andy finally becomes captain, and she's going to give it her all to be the best leader this station has ever seen. Will she succeed? Get ready for fiery new romances and high adrenaline rescues. Watch the Station 19 season premiere tonight at a new time, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. It was his wife that convinced him to record it. It was originally pitched as a B-side choice for a record, and Autry had very little confidence in it. The song was, of course, a massive hit and reached number one on the Billboard charts. Not only was this by far the biggest hit of his career, but it would also be the biggest-selling single in the history of Columbia Records. 
The album he released with him and Rudolph on the cover would sell 2 million copies in its first year, 30 million in total, and it's the second best-selling Christmas album ever after Bing Crosby's White Christmas. The song has been recorded dozens of times, dozens of times by many prominent artists, and it gave us the image and the story that would be captured in the Rankin Bass Rudolph movie. But before that came out, Rudolph would first appear in a cartoon in 1948. This was before the hit song came out, but it follows the basic story from the poem. You can find this on YouTube as well, the last I looked. There isn't any Island of Misfit Toys in this or a Bumble, but it's the standard telling of Rudolph being shunned, uh, but rising up to save the day. It's just a short film. It's only around eight minutes long, and it was also done to promote the Montgomery Ward department store in the same way the original story was about a decade earlier. The cartoon doesn't feature any music, uh, but when the song became a massive hit, it was added in for re-release in 1951. Again, check it out. There, there's various restored versions. Um, I assume it's on YouTube. As soon as they get taken down, someone puts a new one up. Um, but you can find the original 1948 release. Usually it starts out with Silent Night at the beginning because the Rudolph song didn't exist. Um, and it's it looks a little Disney-ish. Um, and, you know, the sound isn't great, but whatever. So now we move on to Rankin Bass. So the name is synonymous with stop motion animation for a variety of TV specials. Rankin Bass production started not that long before Rudolph would first air in 1964. This was an early project. It was started by Arthur Rankin and Jules Bass. They were first known as Videocraft International in 1960. They dubbed their style of stop motion animation Animagic, and it would be produced in Japan. They also did some traditional cell animation using a studio here in Canada called Crawley Films. Their first few releases included the stop-motion New Adventures of Pinocchio, that was in 1960, and then an animated special called Tales of the Wizard of Oz. They were meant just as little kiddie shows that would be shown around the country and, and whatnot, but both of these productions would be funded by regular bank loans, and they didn't get a lot of return on their investment, so it wasn't looking good. Rankin Bass wanted to get on network TV. That's where the money was. And their first properly funded special would be 1964's Return to Oz, and that was bankrolled by General Electric. This was the first type of sequel that existed for The Wizard of Oz, which had come out only 25 years earlier. That's crazy to think about when you, you sort of break up these, these time spans. Return to Oz was cell animated, and it was supposed to be their big splash in a network TV, but it didn't really happen. I'm not sure why that was. I'm, I don't know if, you know, 25 years is still a while, but I don't know if necessarily The Wizard of Oz had built up that status that it has um, today. Either way, it just, it wasn't a big hit. So now they're kind of in trouble and they're looking to take another shot at a decent TV special and to get Rankin Bass on the map and try to make this company successful. So Arthur Rankin happened to be friends with John Marks and he suggested the idea of a Rudolph special. The premise of the story sounded good, and they would also bring in the original author, Robert May, to help put this thing together. They also decided that instead of animation, they would give another attempt at the painstaking but effective animagic style they had used on their Pinocchio special. Okay, so now they start putting the Rudolph special together. And if you want to see the show notes for this episode, 
Um, I've got some pictures on my blog and some pictures and there's some pages from the original script and that's everything 80s podcast.com slash Rudolph movie. Just if you want to see some of these things, it's kind of interesting. So again, General Electric was behind putting out the new special uh, for the holidays and they wanted to go with Rudolph. They thought this was a good idea. So the whole thing, this TV project was conceived by a man named William Zoloff, who was vice president of G's housewares division kind of like the Jack Donaghy of the 60s. The main reason that he definitely wanted to go with Rudolph was first that it was coming up on the 25th anniversary of the original Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer book. The other reason was probably the main reason. He knew he could get permission to make the special as he was friends with Robert May after working with him back at Montgomery Ward in 1939. This is how so much of this entertainment business seems to work as these connections and the people you know. But in the case of the Rudolph uh, special, you had all the big sort of players. You had the original songwriter, you had the original author, like you had all the right pieces in place. So Rankin Bass is not Rankin Bass yet. There's still Videocraft International, but their work in stop motion animation with the Pinocchio special was seen as probably the better choice to make the Rudolph movie as opposed to animation. So they were given 18 months to put together this special. They had a budget of around $500,000 converted for today. That's about 4.2 million, which is a lot, especially back then to invest in something that you don't know it's going to work or not. So that was only, that was not only to make the special, but the commercials for it, that would feature GE. Again, I've got a few links on the blog to clips from YouTube that, you know, may or may not be there anymore, depending on on what's been taken down. But you can see some of these original um, black and white Rudolph GE commercials. They're really interesting. Since the original story and the song were pretty short, they had to put together a longer script. May and fellow writer Romeo Mahler put together a new script that would focus on Rudolph as he grew up and the fellow kids of the original Eight Reindeer. It's funny because in the special, we think of the reindeer that pulls the sled at the end as the classic ones from the song, like Dasher, Dancer, Prancer, Vixen, but they're not. This is a story of them in the future as parents, with Rudolph being one of those kids. They would also use a bit of Joseph Campbell's Hero's Journey, if you're familiar with like that, you know, think of the Luke Skywalker story in Star Wars. And it would center around Rudolph leaving home, growing up, facing his fears and coming back a new buck or whatever. They would also create new locations and new characters such as Hermie the Elf, not Herbie, Hermie with an M. People often mix that one up. Clarice, Yukon Cornelius, Sam the Snowman, the Bumble, the Island of Misfit Toys, all that. So let's look at the music and the changing direction of the show. A big part of what makes this special so great are the amazing songs featured in it. The original song creator, I mentioned John Marks, is brought back to create the iconic songs. He wasn't sure at first about how he was going to pull it off, but then he brought us the classics such as Silver and Gold, Holly Jolly Christmas, There's Always Tomorrow, Fame and Fortune. A big part of the Rudolph special that made it so great would be the narration and the singing by Burl Ives. He had a very familiar and calm demeanor and walked us all through the show and, you know, brought life to the songs he sang, including Holly Jolly Christmas and Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer itself. Burl Ives, though, wasn't a part of the project from the start. At first, the, the narration was going to be done by Larry D. Mann, who did the voice of Yukon Cornelius. They had the entire special recorded with Mann doing the narration in a Brooklyn accent. When the opportunity to get Ives 
um, involved in this whole thing presented itself, they jumped at it. Ives was an American icon already, and his involvement with the show brought it a lot more credibility. Sort of tying it back to Star Wars is the same thing when they brought Alec Guinness on board. It finally gave them some legitimacy and, and more interest. And it was the same thing with this. So since none of the animations had been done yet, they were able to create Sam the Snowman with the likeness of Ives. So they weren't totally having to scrap all the work they did. They, they were easily able to just sort of put things over the top. So this is also, speaking of that, how the voices brought this special to life. The stop motion animation is, is endearing and it's pretty beloved, but it is, you know, very simplistic. The models for the characters in Rudolph, they look great, but it's the voice acting that really brought this special to life. I hadn't realized this, but the entire voice cast, except for Burl Ives, were all fellow Canadians. This was because of Jules Bass using the Canadian Crawley films, which gave him access to these voice actors. Everyone featured in Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer were classically trained radio performers. This medium gave them the ability to create and hone characters based on just seeing an image or getting a simple description of them. Even though radio was dead everywhere else, it lived on here in Canada because of the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, or CBC, and they remained the best voice talent in the world. Rudolph would be voiced by 41-year-old female Billy Mae Richards, who would also be the voice of several Care Bears over the years. Stan Francis provided the voice, the voice of both Santa and King Moonracer. Paul Souls voiced Hermie. Souls was also the voice of Spider-Man in the original cartoon from the 60s. And Janice Orenstein voiced Clarice. These actors really brought to life these essentially lifeless puppets and helped create the true tone of the movie or the special, whatever you want to call it. The big problem was this special was only meant to be a two to three year thing. So the union contracts they signed only covered them for that and not the 55 plus years it's been going on for. This left most of these voice actors really sort of soured over the following years and it's not necessarily a great experience for them. But let's look at some more of the production details. Rudolph would be created in Japan where the animagic process had been created and perfected. Rankin would go over to supervise things, but everything you are watching in the Rudolph special was made in Japan. Most of these puppets used for the special were made out of wood, with over 200 different characters being created. Real materials such as wool and fur were used to try and make them look as real as possible. I don't know. Did you ever think how Rudolph and some of the other characters' eyelids look like they were made of leather? That's because they were. I remember always thinking that. The puppets were the puppets weren't very big at all, with the largest, the Bumble, coming in at 22 inches high. Here's a fun fact: the scary scene of the Bumble peering over the mountains comes from the real-life nightmares of one of the writers. Everything would be finished by the summer of 1964, and it was ready for a viewing audience. Here's something really bizarre I learned researching all this. The very first airing of Rudolph happened on December 6, 1964, on NBC at 4.30 in the afternoon. There was no concept of releasing a kid's holiday special during prime time, as it just made more sense to put something like this on after school. And it was a huge hit. And it, of course, it just it crushed everything else in the ratings. Let's look, though, at the original ending and some future changes that happened to the special. Unless you watched that original broadcast or somehow saw a tape of it, you, have seen, you would have seen a show that is different from the ones that existed from 1965 to today. 
The end of the original broadcast is Santa flying overhead in his sleigh with elves dropping presents. There were no misfit toys, and they had been flown right past them, leaving behind as they thought Santa was coming for them. Upset kids started writing thousands of letters wondering what happened to all the misfit toys. GE decided they needed to resolve the storyline and would create a new ending. So in all future versions, we get a shot of the misfit toys misfit toys gathered around a fire before being taken in by Santa. The ending now shows the misfit toys being dropped out of his sled. The old version was using uh, presents dropped from the sled as the closing credits played over them. Because of this new and longer ending, some cuts to the original show had to be made. The first thing to go was an extended version of We Are Santa's Elves, which included a longer musical interlude. There was also the issue of We're a Couple of Misfits that was sung by Hermie and Rudolph. This was a full scene in the original 1964 airing, but it was replaced by Fame and Fortune in 1965. In 1993, CBS found the original Misfit scene and put it back in, making it the closest thing to the original version. In 2005, for some reason, CBS put out a new edit of the show. This still included the audio of We're a Couple of Misfits, but it was dubbed over the scene for fame and fortune. Also, I'm never sure what the deal with Susie the Misfit toy is as she doesn't seem to have anything wrong with her. And then apparently, according to Rankin and the writers, her issue was that she was under psychiatric care at the time. That was their whole thing. Another part cut, which should have never been removed, was Yukon Cornelius finding a peppermint mine, which he had been looking for throughout the entire series. I wish we could get sort of a despecialized version of this released, like in high quality, um, but I'm not sure that's going to happen anytime soon. Okay, now we look at the story of the missing puppets. And you may have seen this story over the years, or if you've watched shows like Antique Roadshow, you've maybe seen this. Um, th- this story has been covered in a lot of places like CNN and where everything, but it's, it's the case of the lost and then found original puppets. I'm not sure if you can call the figures used for filming puppets, but I guess technically they are. So here's the story. There were a few sets of the puppets used for filming. One stayed in Japan, and a few of the characters were given back to Rankin Bass, who had them displayed in Rockefeller Center in New York, as the show was still owned by CBS. Eventually, the puppets were taken back, and Rankin would end up giving them to his secretary, Barbara, in 1970. She took them home and just gave them to her nieces and nephew, who would end up playing with them like any other toy. They eventually found their way into the upstairs attic, where her nephew would find them years later, but they were in pretty bad shape. The puppets, specifically Santa and Rudolph, ended up on an episode of Antiques Roadshow, where they were considered to be the authentic thing. These two were the only surviving ones as the others had all melted together from being stored in the attic. They were valued at around five to eight thousand dollars despite the rough shape they were in. They would end up being sold on eBay for around twelve thousand. Um, where a company helped in the restoration process. The newly restored figures were taken on the road so everyone would be able to see a piece of TV history. They would then end up being sold again for a hundred grand to a private dealer who would then be offered $200,000 by Hollywood Treasures. The owner would then put them back up on eBay with the astronomical price tag of $10 million. As of right now, I believe they are still with that private owner. So who knows where or who they will end up you know, belonging to. That It's a pretty crazy story. Okay, so I'll start winding it down here. 
And again, you know, despite this, you know, like I said about this podcast being about the eighties, you know, how important the Rudolph movie was to you. If you grew up in the eighties, the seventies, the nineties, whatever time, like I said, it's the most successful and longest running Christmas special in TV history. And, um, even though it's available online and on demand and on video, it's airing on network TV each year and it still causes a massive interest in the la- in 2018 and 2019, it pulled in over 8 million viewers and it, se- it seems to stay around that 8 million mark every year. That is huge for TV viewing. If you have a show that does like 4 million, that's considered successful. This is double that. It is, e- it even creates a stir on social media with Rudolph trending in the top 10 worldwide on Twitter, even I think it was in 2019 or 2018, even Yukon Cornelius was a worldwide trending topic when this thing airs. I think as long as TV exists, the Rudolph Rudolph movie will still be played. So that's the deep dive on the Rudolph special. And I'll finish off this Christmas spectacular. I hope you enjoyed it. Hope you were entertained, learned some interesting stuff, and hopefully you have a happy and safe holiday. I will be back soon again with a new episode. Don't you dare miss it.